Eugene Cash. This is a Sunday night meeting of San Francisco Insight. We'll have a sitting for about 30 minutes, then a talk and discussion. Uh, please set your body in a posture that is helpful for sitting. I'll give a few minutes of instruction. There'll be a longer period to practice in silence after the instructions. Please sit upright and as best as possible, please be on your sits bones. So that the uprightness in the spine comes from the base of the spine. It goes all the way through the back of the neck. to begin with mindfulness of the body, the first foundation of mindfulness. As we establish an embodied awareness. And as you let yourself be upright, with a sense of being in balance, balance from left to right, forward and backwards. And making any subtle or simple adjustments so that you're not tense, that you're relatively at ease or relaxed and upright at the same time. Becoming mindful of the body means to simply be aware of the body now in the present moment. And in whatever way supports you or works for you, feeling, sensing, being aware of, knowing directly the aliveness that we call our body that's here now.
using whatever experience informs you that you're alive here right now. Whether it's the shape of the body or the texture of the body or the touch of the body. or the temperature of the body. Or the movement of the body as you breathe. And if you're being mindful of the breathing, please let your consciousness saturate your body and the breath. That happens naturally, meaning you don't have to exaggerate the breath or fix the breath or do anything to the breath. Simply letting consciousness and awareness saturate the aliveness that is sitting here breathing. And when you feel composed or collected with the breath body, of course, you can then expand the field of awareness to include any experience that presents itself. Whether it be the sound and hearing of my voice, being aware of hearing, or being aware of the scent if you smell something, or the sensations of touching anything, the clothes touching your body, or the, or the air touching your body. Or you may become aware that there are a lot of feelings or emotions that are present in the foreground of awareness. Or for some of us, it'll be thoughts. 
about the day or what happened yesterday or what will happen tomorrow or how the meditation is. And we want to begin to rest in the awareness in which everything is known whether it's thoughts or feelings or emotions or sounds or smells or tastes or touch or images. Noticing how little you have to do that when there's a sound, it's known, or when there's a feeling, you know it. When there's emotion, you know it, or a mood, or a thought. And without getting enchanted by any of it, see what it's like to rest in awareness. And be aware of whatever is here moment by moment by moment. And if you ever feel confused or lost or distracted, you can simply come back to the body and the breathing to reestablish your composure, your aliveness here in the present moment and then we rest in the presence of awareness itself
So tonight, um, I've been thinking about teaching a number of different things that I'm interested in talking about. But um, I was impacted by a movie that I saw that somebody from the Sangha recommended uh, and that I hope to put on the meditation and action uh, page of SFI, uh, which I imagine will happen after tomorrow night when we have a board meeting, because it's a board decision ultimately. Um, and the um, movie which Maggie recommended called Suppressed 2020, The Fight to Vote. Suppressed 2020, The Fight to Vote. And the movie had a big impact on me uh, and made me think a lot about what does it mean to practice in the world now, especially given what I talked about last week, which there was an election and people asked me to speak about that. And so in some ways, this is a continuation of that because it's again, speaking about politics and what's going on in the world. And what does it mean to uh, engage our practice, live our practice um, fully in the world? Because here we are, this is where we live. And, um, and the word that came up watching the movie and stuck in my mind was about fascism. And um, the concern that I felt about what's going on in the country and what could happen and the potential and all the indications of a kind of fascistic mentality. So of course I looked up the word fascism, which means uh, it really, it came from, uh, really was used uh, in World War II, pre-World War II in Italy and Germany and Spain to describe the kind of government and, uh, and the different kinds of organizational um, structures that got set in place that were ended up being called fascist or fascistic, right? Which were characterized by authoritarian or intolerant views or practice, right? Including the belief in the supremacy of one national or ethnic group. Supremacy of one national or ethnic group, contempt for de democracy and insistence on obedience to a leader or a group, right? A kind of demagogic uh, approach to uh, how things work. And um, it's really um, seeing the movie suppressed uh, 2020, the fight to vote really brought up that uh, concern for me. And uh, of course, you know, any concern can arise about anything, which that's part of practice. Like, you know, what am I concerned about, whether it's health or, or, you know, money or love or could be anything. And it all becomes part of practice is how we relate to what arises here in what's alive here. And so I thought I would talk about that tonight, even though I've been really interested at first in talking about other things about, you know, our disconnectedness during the pandemic, the ongoingness of the pandemic, 
and things like that. And um, I'm going to just check one thing. Um, um, and so because I'm going to talk about uh, a little bit about fascism and really about this movie and what it shows. And again, I hope to put that on the website tomorrow. Uh, but you could always go look it up yourself. Suppress 2020, the fight to vote. It's a documentary. It's not very long, but it's powerful. And it's about the... Um, 2018 voter suppression in Georgia, the, the state of Georgia. And it's about Stacey Abrams, who was a, 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 a black woman who um, was in the House of Representatives there for 10 years and became a, a candidate for governor of Georgia. And uh, really an impressive person uh, when I, I mean, I noticed her before this election and listened to her and was impressed by her, her intelligence, her um, clarity and her presence. And I really liked her and hoped she won and she didn't win. And of course, I thought, OK, she didn't win. And then I followed it a little. And so I realized there was some concern and um, she um, she had a lot of support in the election and came very close to uh, winning, lost by 50,000 votes. And, but she sued the uh, Georgia Board of Elections uh, for multiple uh, documented allegations of voter suppression, voter suppression. And so the reason this movie seems so important to me now is I think that could happen in this election that's coming up. And it wouldn't surprise me because we have a fascistic kind of organization to the federal government these days. And, um, and so then somebody sent me, actually my father-in-law, who's not very radical, but good guy, you know, but he sent me a whole thing about um, the post office, which I wasn't very tuned into, right? And the fact that um, um, President Trump is having problems with the post office, right? Because, and then I'll read you just a little of um, COVID-19 has caused many Americans to want to vote by mail rather than risk health and lives in crowded polling places. Local election authorities reported uh, difficulty even recruiting poll workers and selection judges to run the precincts in November, right? So already the voting process is askew a little bit, right? And Democrats are insisting on emergency aid uh, to the beleaguered U United States Post uh, Service, Postal Service, and to state and local election agencies that uh, expect to be flooded with mail-in ballots. And the fear is if the mail is slowed because of the uh, way the post service is being run by the current administration, right, that the ballots won't arrive in time to be counted and millions will be disenfranchised, right? And that concern was compounded Friday when the Postal Service informed many states that they could not guarantee the timely delivery of ballots this fall. 
and the president who started attacking mail-in voting um, for for a while has oh, excuse me uh, he he sh it's shown that uh, the president started attacking mail-in voting even republicans are sh are shying away from this but a dis disproportionate share of voters who say they plan to vote by mail are democratics and problems with the delivery or counting of in-mail ballots could fall more heavily on the Democratic side than the Republican. And a Wisconsin poll uh, showed that 81% of those who said they would vote by mail would vote for Biden. Just 14% said they would vote for Trump. And, and the president has been loudly proclaiming without evidence that widespread mail-in voting could lead to massive fraud. Right. And so that is all set up to undercut the election process as we know it. And, you know, I've kind of, you know, I pay attention and then I don't pay attention. And what I've seen is that my own um, lack of commitment and diligence around this uh, leads to my own ignorance and not seeing oh, what's true and what's needed and what's real. And so seeing this movie, which I knew a little about, and, but I didn't know it to this extent, I'll tell you a little, because it's about voter, suppress voter suppression in Georgia in 2018, when, when Stacey Abrams ran for um, governor. And um, Again, she lost, somebody's got their mic on mic. So if you could uh, mute yourself, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Um, uh, Dean, I, I turned it on intentionally because I just wanted to let you know that this man, DeJoy, who Trump appointed as the postmaster, new postmaster general, has put offline the sorting machines in the post. I understand. It'll come. I've got some stuff about that. So okay. you could wait till the talk is done and then please say anything. Okay. But we're not done yet. Thank you. Um, and so, um, uh, so uh, Stacey Abrams to this day has refused to uh, concede the election. And she's again sued the Georgia Board of Elections for allegations of voter suppression. And um, it demonstrates how it happens in the film. Uh, it automatizes the Georgia election, really looking closely at what's happening in the American electoral system in general, right? And how it's being undercut, especially by the party in power, um, who have devised a, a slow motion, invisible series of methods to stack the deck, meaning keep people from vote. And the implications are serious, in my opinion, right? And so the suppression of voting done was under um, uh, Brian Kemp, who was at that time running for governor, but was also the secretary of state. So he had control of how the whole electoral process in Georgia worked. And as somebody in the movie said, oh, it's like the empire of, of somebody who's playing the baseball game is also the empire calling the balls and strikes, 
right? And you know which side they're going to call the balls and strikes for if if you're playing the game, right? And that it's an example of how those in power use their leverage to um, choke the process. And of course, all of this process targets uh, people who are poor, BIPOC, uh, you know, Black, Indigenous, people of color, and uh, Democrats. And so it really is an important piece for us to pay attention if we're going to live our life and live it in, an, in a real way as practice where everything is part of practice. And what you see is that um, the way that Brian Kemp um, uh, controlled the election was through polling place closures, voter purges, which I didn't even know that was possible, but it is, missing absentee ballots, extreme wait times. I mean, the lines for voting in Georgia, people would stay in line three hours to vote just to get to the ballot or four hours or five hours. To me, that's crazy. And that's bad crazy in my language. That's like something that should not happen if we're going to live in a, quote, democratic country. Like voting is not is like the first thing we should make sure happens for everybody. And so there are extreme wait times and you just see the lines are phenomenal. And people waited so long. And of course, they're waiting. And if they have to go pick up their kids, or they have to get back to work. Or, and so people start leaving, right? And, and um, um, extreme wait times here, I've got more here, voter ID issues, which are were set up, missing mailed in voting applications, people set their applications to vote, and then they disappeared, right, or disproportionately, of course, affecting BIPOC uh, uh, people from casting votes. And the movie shows Kemp, um, in the year leading up to his election, purged 890,000 eligible voters, right? 890,000. I mean, it's just crazy. 890,000, right, from their roles, which is 14% of the electorate. I mean, and then, and of course, Stacey Obrim's only lost by 50,000 votes, right? And so the voters were purged for not, here's reasons why the voters were purged, right? They were purged for not having voted in the last few elections, where they were purged for having moved within the same county, or for not having returned a postcard from the Secretary of State. And Democratic counties were purged at a rate four times that of Republican counties. Right? And this is why I, I, the word fascism just totally came to my heart and mind. This is like, oh, this is controlling government, right? And they also used uh, restrictive exact, uh, exact match laws. And he also put 53,000 new registrants on hold. 80% were BIPOC people. Um, and, and so they didn't get a chance to vote. They were just put on hold until after the election, right? And he's running in the election, 
and you see the lines and they were so slow moving and there were so few uh, polling machines in certain precincts when people get there. If they were poor or people of color or in democratic precincts. And then of course in the white precincts, there were plenty of polling places, little booths to poll and they weren't full and there weren't lines. And you see how government starts to get fascistic, controlled, uh, dictatorial about the outcome, about what's supposed to happen, right? And a woman there is quoted, Carol Anderson, who's the chair of the African-American studies at Emory University. She said, we've got to understand this isn't the Klan cross-burning. This isn't the Klan cross-burning. This stuff is very bureaucratic. It's very mundane. It's very routine and it's lethal, she says. And she's accurate about the, the uh, violence that's being perpetrated through the bureaucracy, through the system. Another woman, uh, Marsha Fudge, heads the election subcommittee of the US uh, House of Representatives. She said, this is systematic. If you look at what happened across the country in the last five years, 40 states have passed laws to make it more difficult for people to vote. I mean, that's just crazy, crazy. Um, and um, let's see what else. So what it comes down to is a certain kind of undercutting and destroying of democracy, one state at a time or one precinct at a time, one vote at a time. And engaged practice means what are we gonna do? How are we gonna respond to the dukkha that's being perpetrated by the government and by the party in power? And, um, you know, if people are morally bankrupt, how do we respond to the dukkha that they're perpetrating on others? And one of the things sometimes people think in Buddhism, you know, you're not supposed to talk about politics, which is not my understanding at all. It doesn't mean we're in control of politics, but it just becomes a bigger part of practice. And I was thinking about, there's a book by a, uh, a man called uh, Brian uh, Victoria. He wrote a book called Zen at War. And it's all about how the Buddhists in Japan responded to the Japanese in World War II. And because that was also uh, a fascistic uh, organization of government at that time, all based on the, the emperor, right? Everybody bowed to the emperor and the emperor was in control. And people were very devoted and culturally it worked for their culture at their time. Um, but what's shocking is there was an unquestioning uh, support by many, most uh, Japanese Buddhists for the nation's militarism, which had really been going on since 1868. And, had, and, they, and the, the, um, the uh, Buddhist uh, teachers were supportive 
of, of the military because it was part of being in harmony with the, the world they lived in and the government. And so as uh, somebody was mentioning about Louis DeJoy, who's now the uh, administrator of the uh, Postal Service, uh, I got an email today from my <coughs> from my father-in-law who said uh, that that said uh, uh, it's a it's a it's a sent out email that he sent. I'm a tax-paying American citizen. Louis DeJoy is taking actions that are disrupting the mission of the U.S. Postal Service, which is to deliver mail to the citizens of the U.S. in a timely fashion. Um, of course, DeJoy is, uh, I believe, a billionaire with no experience or expertise that pertains to the U.S. Postal Service. And in the last three weeks, mail delivery, because he's pulling out the plugs that support mail service and making people uh, not work overtime and, yet, and work harder to, and doing less, right, and getting paid less, um, uh, DeJoy has appointed, uh, uh, the mail has begun to take longer than prior to when he was appointed in the position of Postmaster General. It used to take two to three days to receive something. Now it's four to six. This is in direct correlation to actions he took that deprioritize timely delivery of mail. With federal elections less than three months away in the midst of a global pandemic, it is imperative that the timely delivery of U.S. mail be made a priority. Mr. DeJoy is a barrier to this necessity. And so, of course, this is what we're trying to work with, which is a government that is not dealing with the epidemic, that we're all dealing with and living with and is still here. And also with uh, an election that they're concerned about because it seems like the president is afraid he's gonna lose and he seems to have the personality who would do anything he wants to get what he wants. And so we need to deal with that kind of uh, potentially violent administration. I'm using the word violent very broadly, and I'm using it because this was one of the other things I wanted to talk about, but it ties in about the, uh, about the deconnection we've also, disconnection we've all been feeling. This is from a man named Johan uh, Galtung, who wrote about um, structural violence, structural violence. And it refers to the violence where, where, um, um, where the, it refers to a form of violence where a stru with, uh, structural violence or where institutions harm people, excuse me, by preventing them from meeting their basic needs, Present, prevents them from meeting their basic needs institutionalized adultism, ageism, classism, elitism, ethnocentrism, uh, nationalism, speciesism, racism, sexism are examples of structural violence proposed by Galton. 
uh, rather than conveying uh, an image of violence, structural violence is an avoidable impairment to the fundamental human needs. And as it is avoidable, uh, structural violence is a high cause of many uh, distress, illness, heart, heartache, heartbreak, and also the illness that comes. And then it ends, the, the, this little piece about him, because structural violence affects people differently in various social structures. It is closely linked to social injustice, linked to social injustice. Um, structural violence and direct violence are said to be highly interdependent, including family violence, gender violence, hate crimes, racial violence, police violence, state violence, terrorism, war. And so it's a different, it's, a, it's part of the bigger lens of political violence, which is what fascism is about, which what uh, puts fascism in power and keeps it in power. And so this is something I think we all need to practice with and deal with as we deal with the election that's coming up that people have been concerned about that I'm concerned about. And then what does it mean to practice and how can we practice with what's here? And please pay attention to what's happening or what's happened for you as I speak about this, like what's in your body, what's in your heart, what's in your mind, uh, what you might agree with or not agree with, what you might like to talk about or challenge, any questions about what I've said or your own perspectives about what I'm talking about. And to really begin to see what does this mean to you? If it means anything, or if it doesn't mean, that's also a valid point of view. And let's talk about that. And the last piece I'll say, it's just more personal, but it's really, I really have felt conflicted about talking this. It's like, what, what do I want? I don't want to talk about fascism. I don't want to talk about politics. That's not what I love or care about, right? Except, of course, on some level, yeah, I do care about it. And actually, I, I, I do care about it a lot. I just would rather talk about freedom and waking up and, you know, all the things that I love to talk about about Buddhism. Uh, and this is one of the harder things for me to talk about, even though it's clear, like even when I thought about talking about the disconnection, I thought, oh yeah, talk about this. Why? I'm connected to this. I'm connected to what happens in this country. I would like this country to stay as democratic as possible for as long as possible. Because I, as far as I can tell, it's one of the better forms of government in this world. So, okay, so please raise your hand, go to the participants uh, button if you wanna speak, I'll call on you and then we'll, we'll have a discussion. Great, uh, Kevin, please 
unmute yourself. Hello, I'm glad to be here. It's been quite a while. Uh, one of the things I like about this community, and I want to thank you, Eugene, for bringing this up, is that um, one of the things since I've been coming over the years, I hear about practicing off the mat. Yeah. And that's what I relate. That's what I'm hearing tonight. Now, this may not be proper to say it, and I don't know how everybody's view, but I was raised an activist. Uh -huh. So to me, you're preaching to the choir. Uh -huh. And I definitely, you know, agree with you. And it stirs up a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff for me. Right. So, so, you know. The question comes, how do you practice with the stuff that gets stirred up and, and respond uh, from the energy that gets stirred up, stirred up, not just the reaction that gets stirred up? That's a big question. <laughs> well, that's why I'm teaching. Right. I ask the big so, sometimes. So I, sorry for interrupting. <laughs> I try to practice every day. There's yeah. some things I do, like music helps, gardening helps, reading helps, mm -hmm. and also speaking up. Uh -huh. Speaking yeah. up. You know, when I, when I engage at the main post office about putting my stamp upside down from mm -hmm. a woman who came from an Asian country, and I've traveled a lot being an ex-merchant seaman. Instead of engaging, I just said, please vote. Mm -hmm. That's what I said, please vote. And I know we have another activist online here, Lloyd, who's very political and does a lot of great stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. But how do I, you know, so I don't know. So, if but this what you're saying is really important to watch your reaction, because your re reaction may be, uh, uh, an awakened reaction. It may not be an awakened reaction. And you want to see that. So you don't just want to respond to the reactivity. You want to see what's true. And then what do I actually want to say or do? Yes. Right. And, and, and my goal is to, to fight the good fight. Okay. Whatever that may be, whether that be in the election, the Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. Whatever the issue comes up or is in my face, and not to let it come and then dissipate. Got it. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Lloyd, unmute yourself. Hi, again. Hi. Hey, so, uh, yeah, so for me, I, you know, I, in, in since 2016, I'd been going out to the Central Valley and uh, working for the Democratic Party, um, mostly speaking with Latinos about the upcoming election. But since the COVID, we can't go door to door anymore. So I got involved with a group called Reclaim Our Vote. And I, I, you know, I find that it's a, it's a way to get involved, but what we do is we're writing postcards predominantly to Georgia, Arizona, and Texas, mostly Latinos and Blacks that have been removed from the voter from the state voter registrar without their knowledge. So we, we're writing postcards to inform them that they need 
to, to check their voter registration and we give them the phone number and the address and the email and the website of their local voter registrar. And, you know, if anybody's interested, I put my, my email up and uh, we need people to join us. The election's not that far off. And a lot of people have been disenfranchised and they will not know it until they get to the polls. Right. So that's kind of what I'm doing. Great. Thank you, Lloyd. Sounds good. And there are many different skillful things to do. I'm glad you're doing that. Thank you. Okay. So, Allison. Please. I wasn't really raising my hand. Hi, Eugene. Hi, everybody. I was actually just giving Lloyd the thumbs up and thank you for your talk. Um, I found myself feeling so frustrated because I am aware of so many of the things that you're talking about and they already made me mad. And I feel so in the news about all these different aspects and then also wanting to build the skillfulness that just allows proper and appropriate response. So this feels like a sanctuary and I feel so mad that it's also violated by all of these corruptions. <laughs> Even as I know that it's important to bring, we wanna bring these two things together um, or all the things into practice. So I'm struggling with those things and how to meet the world with um, some really scary decisions that involve a lot of ethics right now. It's really hard. So thank you for the Sangha for being here. Sure, but it really seems important. That's why the sitting practice is so important. The sitting, the walking, and the crying practice. That's okay, really good. And by good, I mean you want to let the emotions go through you. Yeah, I do. <laughs> without, without judging yourself at all. Yeah. So that when they go through you, you it actually purifies the heart and mind, and then you can respond more diligently, intelligently, clearly, in whatever way you want. Yeah, it's hard to carry the vulnerability around sometimes. It is. And so being kind to yourself becomes an important part of practice, a key part. Well, none of us can do this without being kind to ourselves. Because we, we all, none of us are totally free. And so we're going we're gonna to feel what it is to be a human being. Mm. And that's part of it. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being here with me. Alicia. Hi, James. Hi, I'm trying to see you. Uh, blue shirt, yellow background. <laughs> no, no, I'm trying to get you in speaker. There you are. Okay, good. <laughs> I see a blue shirt, yellow black background, some guy sitting here. <laughs> <laughs> Random much. <laughs> um, so my... Um, experience during the talk was 
um, you know, you don't usually bring politics. And I was like, oh, well, here's, you know, Eugene's talking about politics. And I was, and you kept sort of saying this phrase, like, well, how do we practice with this? And how do we, and I was waiting for you to tell me the answer, <laughs> right? Like, you're the teacher and, oh my God, this thing is happening. Here's mm -hmm. This is how you do it. And I'm realizing that, um, I mean, I'm horrified by some of the things that are happening and we're doing postcard writing mm -hmm. and that's an action, but I'm not, I'm, I'm doing that as busy work to like, at least I'm doing something, but I'm not really feeling the horror and I'm not really feeling, I'm not practicing with, um, I'm not practicing with the emotions that come up. I mostly just try to avoid the news or write my postcards and say, yeah. okay, I'm doing a good job. Yeah. So, so how do we practice with it? Oh, well, just like you're talking about, that's one of the key ways to practice with it is to do some action and then see also what helps you stay balanced in the middle of a lot of crap. And as a politics is generally, it's a difficult realm, right? And a lot of crap goes on there. And, but it seems quite uh, uh, exacerbated uh, in this time. And especially with COVID-19, it's like, you know, it's just a crazy time. And, yeah. and there's, you know, and it's, for some people, it means going out in the street and protesting and acting or supporting the people of Portland or, you know, where all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, it's been a while, they, the, the federal government is fighting against them, right? And it's, this is, but it's serious because it's, because on a certain level, like I'm comfortable, you know, I have a nice office, a house, I'm here, I'm fine. I have the park, you know, even with COVID-19, I'm okay. But the country is not okay. And so it means, what does it mean to tune into that and, and how to tune into it and not just totally lose one's balance? And that's why I believe last week I talked a bit about equanimity also and how important that is to keep finding our balance, finding our ground, because what's here is bigger than any of this stuff. But what's here, the depth of what's here, and I'm pointing at both of you, right? That's what we want to respond to this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I... And it's true. What you're asking is, of course, I don't have the answer, but me not having the answer is part of the real answer. It's not a one person's going to have the answer and then we do what they say. No, I mean, that's, you know, if you want to learn how to, you know do CrossFit, I can teach you that, right? You know, you do this, you do that, you do this, you do it this way, but then to do it, you still have to do it. And, and but with this, it's much, even the political refrain that we're um, engaging in is about changing the structure of the politics themselves so that we all are part of it. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. And it's easier. No, no, to it's not overwhelming. It can no. feel overwhelming. It's a feeling. 
it's just dealing with the way things are. And, and so you want to be aware of your feelings. Don't just believe your feelings. So I feel overwhelmed. It's not overwhelming. Yes. And you may, and when, what is it to feel overwhelmed becomes part of your practice. So you can start to transmute that feeling called overwhelm, which we have at times. And of course, what do you mean by transmute? I mean, it can be metabolized instead of just flood us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And that, and when, and when it's metabolized, then we can use the energy that's there. That's good energy. Does that make sense? Yes. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Cameron, please unmute yourself. Hi, Eugene. Hi, Sangha. Uh, I thought we might hear from you too. <laughs> um, I wanted to share and also get your insights. I, I started reading a book called Standing at the Edge by Roshi Joan Halifax. Uh -huh. She's a co-founder of Zen Peacemakers. And yeah. I just kind of got into her framework that they use for engaged Buddhism, uh, which the, the first step is not knowing. Mm -hmm. The second step is bearing witness. And then the third is what she calls compassionate action. Mm -hmm. um, I just would love to hear your insights in practicing those, how it might be applicable to what we're talking about here. She, she covers a good bit about empathic distress and where uh, we're at the edge of empathy and we go into that overwhelm period and how to how to kind of come back to center so that we can actually take action and not be overwhelmed by the thought of wanting to that makes sense sure give me the three principles that joan joan is putting out so not knowing right great bearing bearing witness and passionate right. action and she talks about them you know sequentially as though uh-huh informs or inspires the next uh, not knowing bearing witness and then compassionate action yes great it's funny i listened to her a little uh because i was looking for what are people saying about politics and of course she's one of the people saying things about politics um uh and it was fun fun to her to hear her because i don't know if i've heard her in years talk and so it was, it was interesting to hear um, not knowing is great because, of course, that's part of the freedom we can rest in and the openness of heart and mind to learn. And, you know, the Buddha, one of the metaphors, the, you, the Buddha, I don't know if it's a metaphor or a euphemism the, that the Buddha used to talk about awakening is understanding, Right? the whole path is about understanding, or we could say the whole path is about freedom, or the whole path is about waking up. But understanding is one of the words that he used, because it's about waking up to what's true. And so not knowing is where true knowing comes from. And that is, I know that in all my practices, both in Buddhism and the diamond approach, like that's my clear, direct understanding. That's where anything I know really comes from not knowing. And so being open in that way and being what I would call relaxed in that way and wanting to see what's true 
is key for practice and it's key for how to work with politics because there are good people in politics and then there are people who, you know, in my more primitive version, I say are idiots in, in politics. And, you know, and you have to see who's who, you know, where they're good. And there are even good people who I may disagree with. And I want to see who's here and how can I relate to them? Because, um, and so the way true knowing comes, and I'm just riffing off Joan here, comes from bearing witness and really learning how to stay present with what's true and what's here and what we hear, see, feel, think, sense, experience at any, and, at any moment and every moment. And bearing witness, which I think she probably got from Philip Glassman, that's my guess, who did, who did a lot of, uh, uh, I think this is the, the right Zen teacher, who did a lot of bearing witness in Auschwitz, right? He, he went there. Bernie Glassman. Bernie Glassman, thank you. Yeah, Bernie Glassman. And, and, uh, and he learned, where, he didn't learn by going there knowing what was going to happen. He went there to learn what's there when I'm there. What's alive there now? And what happens to me as I sit in the middle of dukkha? And as you know, both of you know, and all of you here know, right? Dukkha leads to the end of dukkha. But it's only by getting there, bearing witness to dukkha. And that's partly what, why I thought the talk tonight was appropriate, because we're bearing witness to the dukkha, that, the political dukkha that's here in our country. And that needs are what Joan would call compassionate action. And that can be different for different people at different times in different moments of reality. And so sometimes that means going out in the street and protesting and, you know, doing all kinds of things out in the street. And I've done those at different times in my life around politics. And it's sometimes it means no, sending postcards like people are talking about, or other things that I don't even know about that are possible. You know, the one thing I've been involved with in this election is win Wisconsin, because Wisconsin's supposedly a big deal state. To If we win Wisconsin, that could be a key state to win. And okay, I hope that's true. I've been putting energy, time, money there. And let's see what happens. And, and so compassionate action is what's the way to respond compassionately to oneself and to the world. And when I say compassionately to oneself, that means one practices with what's here, uh, including when one is overwhelmed, so that sometimes one backs off, so that one is not uh, flooded by the overwhelm. And so it, it's a really lived practice, compassionate action. And of course, since Joan's a, a Zen teacher, then I have to say, oh, it means wholehearted action, right? Which she would use that phrase, I'm sure. And, and a, a kind of wholeheartedness in which we engage with reality, not just using the mind and not just using the body, but using all of us, the heart also.
So that's a little response. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And let's see who's there. Dan is here now. Please unmute Dan. Uh, hey, Gene, thanks very much for the talk tonight. I thought it was um, very good. I appreciate it. Good, um, thank you. I'm, I'm, I have, I guess, some disagreements with the subject matter as you were asking, yeah. talking about sort yeah. of politics and bringing it into the Sangha. And I'm aware of the fact that up until four years ago, it was the other folks who had the dukkha politically. Like I thought, great, we've got an African-American president, we've got two women on the Supreme Court that he put on, we've got uh, marriage equality, pro-environmental legislation, um, universal health care, all these things that I thought were great, mm -hmm. that I understand the other half of the country felt weren't great and, and was suffering as a result. And now the tables have turned as they do every seemingly four or eight years. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, like, how do I incorporate the, the objectivity of the Dharma when there's so much polarization which I'm now feeling within my own Sangha. Mm -hmm. And I don't want it to be that way. I, it's not that I don't agree with everything you were saying. I'm just not sure if I right. want to hear it here. Yeah. And, and then there's a part of me which is like, well, I'm just avoiding it. And it's just, you know. You know watch out for the judging mind. Let's right. just keep looking and seeing if you're avoiding or not, you know. Right, right. Yeah. So, so let's just say for the sake of argument that I was somebody who disagreed with your politics, but right. I, would, I would love to hear anybody who disagrees yeah. with my politics. Yeah, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll play your foil. So I would, you know, Eugene, it sounds to me like you have a, a strong attachment to fair elections. I uh, would say. I do. Tell yeah. me. And so how do you, how do you practice activism with non-attachment or do you not? How does because that... I know that I'm not in control of anything. Maybe I want things to happen. Yeah, I'm, I'm attached to fair elections. That's important to my heart. And it may not happen. Is that an okay attachment? Yeah, for me it is, because I'm not totally attached to anything. Yeah. Because I know more than that, right? Meaning I know I'm, I can't actually hold on to anything. Yeah. I can't hold on to politics. I can't hold on to who's going to win. I can do my best to, to, to support the people I think are more kind, fair, intelligent, um, uh, inclusive. Sure. And I'm going to do that. But I'm not in control. And there's here, I'll give you a little Buddhist story about this because yeah. you like Buddhism. I like that about you. Um, meaning you're, you're asking about, you know, is this really Buddhist at a certain level? Because there are differences. So yeah. there's a great, some, there's two stories in the suttas. One where the Buddha, people, I've said this before, people are going to war and he's sitting by the side of the road. He's just meditating and this tribe is going to go fight. And he stops, they stop and say hello and and they, he hears what they're doing and he gives them a whole talk about, you know, not killing or not harming or not doing, you know, hurting people and <laughs> taking care of everybody. And he convinces them and, and they stop and they go home and he's happy. And then he, this happens again at a, further in the suttas, later in the suttas, where a group of people are going to war and they come by and they tell him and, and he starts to talk and, 
And he quickly sees they're not going to listen to him. And so he shuts up and he just lets them do what they do because he's not, he's not in control of reality either. He, one of the great things about, a human, about the Buddha is he's a human being. He's not a God who's in control of reality. He's just a human who, who wakes up and then tries to live his awakening and does a lot. He does so many things that were radical in his time and place. You know, I'm just looking at a whole book about caste in India and yeah. how he challenged caste in India every which way, meaning he let in all the, the, the castes who, who were the lower, lowest caste. But also then he finally let in women, even though he resisted that, because the most prejudice, the most bias was against women. And he, even that he didn't do it at first. And then he learned because practice is about understanding what's true. And he woke up slowly about that. Mm. So that's, you know, I hope that's putting more, yeah. more um, information in your inquiry about this. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, great. Thank you. Okay, Miru, please join us. Hi, Eugene. Hi, everyone. Hi. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, thanks for the talk today. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the, the question you keep posing to us, uh, which is what's true. Uh -huh. um, and I listened to the story of um, Eric Black. Um, he is the son of the, he was a sort of a heir apparent of the white supremacist of Don Black. So Don Black was the leader of the KKK and then Derek Black was his son. So he grew up actually in that environment. Mm -hmm. And he, but in 2015, when he was about 25 year old, he actually renounced his entire belief around the white supremacism um, because of the one incident. Well, it's not a one incident. He was invited to this dinner um, that was hosted by his friend who was living in the dorm at the college campus at the, at the time. And this guy who invited him was, his name is Matthew Stevenson. And he was the only uh, Orthodox Jewish person on campus. And he was having Shabbat dinner on a, every Friday and he was inviting friends. And Matthew knew about Derek and then Derek's father and Derek has spent in their entire life on denying Holocaust and everything about white supremacism. And, um, but it, Matthew decided to, I'll just invite him and we're going to talk about everything else but white privilege. <laughs> and uh -huh. and I, what I listened to was the, the interview that Derek gave, what changed him, what changed his belief. And it didn't happen right away. It happened over three years. So mm -hmm. he took him to that dinner for three years straight. And he said that I couldn't deny, I, I couldn't really shake my belief uh, until I made friends with these people who mm -hmm. I was taught that mm -hmm. they, are not, they are not the my in-group people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the more I talked to them, talked to, you know, hung out with them, I they're my friends and I like them. Mm -hmm. And I started having this doubt in mind that perhaps my belief is harming them is not the right thing to, to mm -hmm. uh, you know bring up anymore. Right. And it with a very small moment. And I think that question was true 
was I think what he practiced at the time, even though he didn't probably think it that way. Mm-hmm. And, and I found that question was true in every moment, so powerful uh, in my practice too. Like yeah. when I talk to people, when I sometimes see an article in New York Times that's so outraged and then I want to post it on, share it on Facebook, but then I pause there, mm-hmm. is the right thing to do or it was, what, is it true? Uh-huh. So I wanted, to, I wanted to just share that as an example and uh, it's small, but I always, more of these days that it starts from the small moments. Um, the well, start- you're saying something really important about him, which is first of all, his understanding came over time. Mm-hmm. It took time for him to understand that he might be uh, uh, ignorant about the people who he was prejudiced against. And you're also bringing up a really important point about the person-to-person contact and how that's one of the things that changes us more than yelling at anybody or, or, you know, saying, I know everything, right? It's like, we're all here together, right? And seeing the humanness of everybody, it changes all of us. And it's a good thing. And I've always appreciated how my own ignorance has has, um, gotten more permeable by meeting and talking and learning from people who are not like me, whoever they are, right? Mm -hmm. In whatever way. Yeah, Yeah. thank you. Yeah, so I just uh, thought of the story as I was listening to you today, because, um, and I I thought that that in terms of compassion action, that um, yeah. brought up that guy, Matthew Stevenson, basically did that compassionate action by inviting him to his in-group and made him feel what it feels like to be around, the, around by these people. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, no, it's, it can be very radical, compassionate action. Thank Great. you. Okay, thank you. I think we're going to stop there. Let me just see what time it is. Yeah, we're going to stop here. Um, uh, let me see. I'm supposed to say something about Donna, generosity. Uh, you know, the way we function here at SFI is through your your uh, goodwill and your Donna, your offering. Um, it helps support SFI and uh, also supports me um, uh, for the teaching. So please thank you for your generosity. I don't know if we have it in the chat box, but maybe we do somewhere we could put it in oh great and you're and there's a lot of other things in the chat box so i'm going to leave the chat box up for a little while so you can see what's there um, cameron uh sent the uh the suppressed 2020 documentary how you can get to it and lloyd put his email i'm going to see what else is in there there's other notes about what's said a book that mentions Standing at the Edge by Joan Halifax, and then Eileen Bikubodi translated suttas, so Buddhist teachings on socially engaged, uh, social and communal harmony. Um, <clears throat> Derek Black's story, Miru put in there. And then the information about Dhamma is the last thing in the chat box. So please, thank you for your generosity. We'll just sit for a moment. Um, 
appreciating that we have the time, place, connection, community, so that we can keep investigating uh, uh, what we don't know and uh, bearing witness, seeing what's here and uh, learning to understand what's true and waking up to what does it mean to be compassionate and act in the world uh, from our practice and uh, sending out our good fortune in every direction, touching beings in every world, in every realm. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken and realize their true nature, the nature of wisdom and compassion. May all beings be free to vote. Thank you, everybody. Good to be with you. I think uh, Pamela Weiss is here next week. I'll be back in two weeks. See you then. Um, stay healthy. Take care of yourself. Yeah, good to see you all. And if you, I'll leave the this all open for a while, and uh, you can go to the chat box if you that's helpful. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Eugene. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. okay, that's it. I'm closing. See you in two weeks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.